Last Things First. This episode of Last Things First is sponsored by Casper Mattress. Go to www.casper.com slash lastthingsfirst. Type in the promo code lastthingsfirst and receive an amazing price on an amazing mattress. Just for Laughs, official theme music. They've been playing this for all 34 years, or? Woo! Hello, Montreal. How are, how are, how are all of you doing? Thank you for being here. Can you guys not all clap at the same time? <laughs> Just try to scatter it so it sounds like more people. It's a sold-out show here. <laughs> yes, here we are at Just for Laughs, Montreal. Uh, hello, my name is Sean L. McCarthy. I'm the founding editor of the Comics Comic. Uh, found wherever you can type the comics comic into your electronic devices. Uh, welcome to Last Things First. This is the podcast where I ask comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their careers are blossoming or, or, or still blossoming. Uh, it's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. My get, special guest today, uh, he literally is the life of the party. That's the title of the 2014 memoir that Bert Kreischer wrote. Was that two years ago? Yeah. Shit. <laughs> it talked, it's a, it's a book about his life. Uh, he was a sixth-year senior at Florida State when Rolling Stone magazine profiled him, and that magazine article later became the basis for the film National Lampoon's Van Wilder. Uh, he's currently the host of two shows on the Travel Channel, uh, Trip Flip and Bert the Conqueror. Please welcome my guest, Bert Kreischer. Hey, everybody. Thank you very much. And thank you, Sean, for having me. I appreciate it. We've known each other for a while. We have. We have. And we've always wanted to do this, and we never got a chance to. And I'm really excited you started doing this. One of my favorite podcasts that I've heard in the recent uh, in the recent, you know, past six months or whatever is the one you did with Liam McInerney. 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 Yeah. Yeah, that was a really great podcast. It was really insightful. Oh, thanks. Yeah. yeah so start with a compliment. Uh, speaking of which, uh, last things first. So earlier this week, Bert, uh, you were performing with the Goddamn Comedy Jam in Los Angeles. Uh, the Goddamn Comedy Jam is also part of Just for Laughs this year. Uh, but you were out there in Los Angeles where they're based and you performed a Red Hot Chili Peppers tribute wearing only your uh, sock? A sock on my cock. Yeah. Whose idea was that? That was mine. It was a, it was a bad idea. I, I, I had planned on it being a lot better. You imagine, or how old are you, young lady? 19? You, you can hear this. Um, <laughs> you imagine that you would fill up a sock very easily. But what happens is uh, when you get nervous, mm-hmm. your testicles seem to retreat into your body somewhat. <laughs> And so I had a hard time keeping my junk in the sock. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I looked at videos of Anthony Kiedis and, and Flea doing it, and they looked small in their socks. And I went, that's not a good sign. When a rock star <laughs> looks small in his sock, and mm-hmm. it, it was his idea. Right. So we, we bought, I bought the socks. I bought, like, a lot of socks. I bought, like, f- fucking 16 socks. <laughs> I'm not even joking. I got a b- different varieties of socks. Mm-hmm. I got compression socks. I got everything because I was like, I knew this was going to be problematic. Right. So I got all the socks, and luckily there was one where it had a, a band at the top. It's like an old man sock. So it would stay. So it would stay, 
uh, and we started doing it, but I still had a problem keeping my junk in there, mm-hmm. and I was afraid dancing around it was going to fly out, so I bought toupee tape to put – so I taped around the outer regions of my package, mm-hmm. hoping it would stick. Still wouldn't stick. <laughs> so I took a rubber band from uh, one of the girls backstage, mm-hmm. and I double rubber banded it around my junk, and that was the key. That was the fi- that was how I figured out how to do it. Now, see, of everything you said in that story, the the only thing I don't buy is the fact that you were nervous about being nude. Like, well, I don't look good. You know, I, I you, you're you're you oftentimes at least topless, if not more. I'm topless. I have tactile issues, but <laughs> and I and I used to be the guy in college that would get naked in a heartbeat and right. just and not not a care in the world, but. Uh, so what happened? My, you know, I'm I'm the fattest I've ever been right now. Mm-hmm. I'm going through a huge fat shaming campaign online. Oh, with Tom Segura. With Tom Segura, and it just adds up. When people say fat shaming isn't real, they're fucking wrong. It's it leaks into your head, mm-hmm. and you start you start reading these as truths, and they become truths to you, and it fucks with your self esteem. And I tried it out in my hotel room in Hartford, and all I could see, all I could see was all I could see was my pubis and how unattractive it was mm-hmm. how it didn't have that d'angelo angle to it and i could see and that's a real flaw like that's not like a, if i take my shirt off you see my gut you're like oh he's a big guy mm-hmm. but when you see my fat pubis you're like oh no that, that's legit visceral fat that guy's gonna die like it's it right. it fall it, it so uh but you know what yeah it's funny when you do take your dick out in public <laughs> it's amazing the story no one ever talks about how small it is or how fat mm-hmm. you were. They're just like, holy shit. I can't believe it. It's like a cafe bombing. You never right. talk about what the bomber was wearing. All you knew is that he exploded. And so that was kind of and, – and like there's a second that when we got up and we started doing it – because I went out and I did stand-up in sweatpants and I had the sock cock on. Mm-hmm. And then I got done my set and I pulled my pants down and literally I, – and I, all I saw – was cameras going up in the air. And I was like, oh, there is no way my kids are not going to see this. <laughs> like, this is getting in their in their swing zone. Now, you've been a ham since you were a kid. Yeah. I mean, you performed as early as the first grade. Yeah, well, I I was uh, oblivious to um, to shame. Like, I didn't understand that you could look foolish. So your self-esteem was rock I, solid as a... It was six it, or seven year old. It was untouchable because I didn't know that you could be foolish. I didn't understand that you could make an ass out of yourself. My dad's the one that instilled that in me. Mm-hmm. That like, oh no, you can look like an ass and people can not like you because of how you behave. But I didn't know that. That's what my mom is like that. Like the first fly ball I ever caught, I caught a fly ball, I grabbed it and I spiked it and started doing a dance because I just figured that's what you do when you did something good. And then all the bases cleared, everyone scored and my dad got in my ass. I mean, I was, I was in first grade. He was in the car and he was like, the fuck is wrong with you? And I was just sitting there going, why aren't you high-fiving me? I just <laughs> caught a fly ball. But, so yeah. it wasn't the third out. No, he, no, it was not the third <laughs> out and the bases were loaded. But And then the same thing happened when I performed I Dressed His Kiss in first grade and I put on all the makeup. I wore my mom's tights. I had uh, chains around my chest, mm-hmm. shirtless with a cape on. And my dad sat in the car next to me, driving me to school, and he was just like, he was like, what, what's wrong with you? And I remember being like, what do you mean? I look badass. Like, in my head, but my dad was just like, holy, like, and he brought a change of clothes. He's like, in case you change your mind. I go, change my mind? 
I look like a, I'm, I look like a fucking rock star right now. Like I'm first grade. I'm killing it. And so, and, but my dad slowly beat that into me. I'm amazed that a first grader would even know the music of Kiss, let Dude, alone be inspired to. Gene Simmons is an asshole it. for the record, but I was a massive Kiss fan. They mm-hmm. used to sell Slurpee cups with the Kiss guys, and when, and when I was a kid at Seven Eleven. Dude, first I, I was obsessed with Kiss well into like probably third, fourth grade. I loved Kiss. I st- and now I can't stand them. So I take it you've met Gene Simmons? He's an asshole. He's the biggest asshole I've ever met in my entire life. Never meet your heroes. He is an asshole. He is an asshole beyond assholes. I hope everyone's understanding my feelings towards Gene Simmons. He's a fucking asshole. But when you were a kid, the goal was to be Gene Simmons. Yeah. And <laughs> or some, luckily, or someone luckily, like him. Well, actually, Ace Freely was my hero. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Ace Freely and Peter Christ, oddly enough, the two ones that left Kiss earliest, mm-hmm. and the only one that stayed was Paul Stanley, who, by the way, is a very sweet guy, uh, and Gene Simmons. But I'm sure Peter Christ and Ace Freely were like me. They were like me and today, like a soft centered, soft sold artist who just wanted to have a good time. And Gene Simmons is just a corporate asshole. He's an asshole. Did I get that out? <laughs> I, I think I think our yeah. audience understands. Yeah, I think they're uh, on board. He just blocked me on Twitter too. Oh, thank God. What was the What was the thing that did it? He did He did something wrong to me, like very wrong. He was a, f- and I t- I talked about it on J- Joe Rogan's podcast. Mm-hmm. So anytime he would tweet things, my fans would be like, "I think you need to apologize to Burt Kreischer." <laughs> and then finally, he uh, when he did said the thing about Prince, I everyone just came at me. And him, and he had to block me because I was I was totally retweeting everything. So, how far did you take your musical dream? Uh, it's an interesting question. I put it on hiatus until uh, probably my I think junior year of high school, sophomore year of high school, and then I got a guitar. I got a, a Martin guitar, and I learned how to play music. And then, did you uh, a guitar teacher, or did you self self taught? John Noonan. Uh, taught me how to play guitar mm-hmm. in the in the library in the the yearbook room. Okay, that's where like the those kids hung out with, and I wasn't those kids. I was a, a jock across the board. Still to this day, I'm a bro. Like I would classify myself as a bro. I like high fives. I like block, block punts. I like killing beers. <laughs> I like sunsets. I don't. I'm not like. I only wear skinny jeans because I'm fat. So the uh, we we went. He taught me some songs. First mm-hmm. song I ever learned was She Talks to Angels. And then I took those skills to college and tried to woo ladies uh, with my music. And I started getting better and better and better. And then junior, my first junior year, second sophomore year, first junior year of college. Right, I, because uh, you had several years of well, college. Well, that's how you do college if you do it right. You get one freshman, two sophomore, two junior, one senior. And so uh, I started a band with Ben Carter. Uh, John Dacre, Brent Bracken, and we in and we had a band called Giving Out Spankins, and we were getting ready to play live. And then we brought in this other kid that used to he used to he was one of our fraternity brothers. He was in the, he was a transfer. Um, his name was Mark. We brought him in, and we started. He was really fucking good, like so good. I realized yeah, he's gonna realize that I suck. So we, me and Brent, were like, we gotta kick him out of the band because he's he's that good that he would very quickly go. You know, if we replace Bert, we'd have a really good band. And I was, didn't want to lose my band, so I kicked mm-hmm. him out. And he was like, I'm going to start a band ten times better than your band. And I was like, good luck. And he started a band called Creed. It's, is it ten times as better as... It was ten times as better as our band. 
trust me. And I've heard myself sing at the goddamn comedy jam. Yeah, he made the right call. <laughs> but, but, uh, but you know, I think my career's growing and his is kind of plateaued. <laughs> so what was your plan when you were in that sixth year at Florida State? No plan. No plan. Move to Aspen, work a ski lift. Maybe, maybe sell boats in Orlando. Maybe. Cause you're from Florida. I'm from Florida. Maybe, uh, sell carpets in East Georgia. But definitely go to Aspen. Find Wait, myself. selling carpets was in the top five. Matt Kaiser was selling carpets, and he was making great money, and he had a big van with captain seats in it, <laughs> and I've it just looked good to me. He was like, "Dude, you smoke weed, you drive around, you drop off carpets, you're in shape because you're carrying carpets around." Mm-hmm. He's like, "It's great money." You know, what's so crazy is I met randomly in my business now. I met the guy whose dad ran the carpet business in East Georgia. Isn't that crazy? Like I told him. Did you tell him that you almost? I said, I said, I almost worked for your dad. He was like, yeah. He's like, what did you go to Florida State? I said, yeah. His dad used to funnel in Florida State people. That's how Matt Kaiser got the job was through Cuz. And then, so it just built up. But yeah, I didn't have any plans. I didn't have any plans. I was like, maybe grad school, but I wasn't that good of a student in the first place. So yeah, I had no plans. And then Rolling Stone Magazine calls you up. Then Rolling Stone Magazine called me in like probably the beginning of my my first senior year, and uh, they were like, hey, we want to write an article about uh, Florida State. And I was in the middle of a bong hit when they called. And so he literally was like, because we were the number one party school, and he wanted to write an article about the number one party school. I was in the middle of a bong hit. I, he literally was like, are you taking a bong hit? And I was like, yeah. He's like, oh, this is fucking perfect. And so I, st- I stayed with this guy for uh, – for a week in November, right he, after our, our he Christmas. stayed in your dorm room or the frat house. Or? I lived in Indian Village in a in like a co- apartment okay. condo, and uh, he stayed with me on my couch for a week. He spent the night at my girlfriend's house when I spent the night there. We got him high. He had never he got he hadn't gotten high in like fifteen years. It was crazy. It was a really great week. Like, and he had an account, so he'd be like, he'd like had a like a slush fund. So he'd be right. like, "What do you guys want to do?" I'm like, "Wow, we'd like to go drink beers." He'd be like, I'll pay for it. So I just call people and go, Hey guys, we're going to the poorhouse or Hey, we're going to, we're going to pot bellies. And we would just get blitzed with this guy. And, uh, he wrote the article about the school. It wasn't that interesting. How long did it take for the article to come out? Uh, he left us in November. It came out April 1st to 1997. Okay. So there's a gap there where you're just like, just, went, I mean, it was, it was not, it wasn't even a blip in my life. Like long I, enough that you might have even forgotten. They sent a photographer to come take pictures of us. Mm-hmm. And I remember me and my buddy Hutch and my buddy Blair were trying to get in all the pictures because we, we wanted to be in the article. Like we were like, cause we were like, there's no way he'll mention us. But if we're in a picture, then we can point to it. And that would be like the highlight of my life. And you so. You didn't realize the article was going to be about you. Dude, I didn't realize he was taking pictures of me. <laughs> like he, all the pictures were of me. And, but I was like, I felt like a ham because I was like, oh, I'll, I'll get right up front. And they were like, yeah, Bert, stand up front, take your shirt off, and hold the keg over your head. And I'm like, done. And and I had no idea. They were simply taking pictures of me. So that, when they the, he sent the tape, I went to D.C. to go interview with my uncle to see if I could work in D.C. after graduation. And my dad, I was going, it was during our spring break, and I was flying from D.C. to Tampa to Key West. And that's where we were doing spring break. And my dad met me at the airport in Tampa for in, for my layover. And he said, I have the proofs for the Rolling Stone article, and they need you to sign off on them. 
And I was like, okay. So we met, and my dad opened it. We were at uh, Fridays at the Tampa airport, and my dad opened it, and it was all pictures of me and my buddies. My dad's like, buddy, I think I think you're going to be in this article. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah, this could be good for you. He had no fucking idea what the article was about. <laughs> he, he didn't actually read it. He just saw he, the pictures. He just saw the pictures. That's all they gave him. And he's like, buddy, this could be – you might be – get. This, I don't – I've got to be honest with you. And I was like, yeah. And then all of a sudden – the article comes out April 1st, and my dad was the first one that called. He was like, what the fuck did you do? And I was like, what? And he goes, we have news crews camped out in front of our house. And I'm like, I have no idea. A knock at the door. And this sounds too good to be true. This is how I remember it. A knock at the door, UPS guy with a delivery for Burt Kreischer. I open it up, and it's the Rolling Stone article. I'm like, holy shit, Dad. I think I'm in Rolling Stone. And he was like, "What is it bad? And I – and like – I opened it and I started reading it. It was like, it was, it was great today. Like I look at that now. I, that article makes me cry. I'm so, it was such a great representation of that time in my life, but it was honest. I did not tell, I told this guy secrets, like, like, and (laughs) everyone told stories about me that I shit on a pizza box to win an election. And that I was like, that I wouldn't wear condoms. Like, like, cause I couldn't get it. Like whatever. It was just very open. And my dad was like, he was not, it wasn't that he wasn't cool about it, but he definitely measured his tone and was like, you know what? Don't talk to media. Don't talk to anyone. And I'm like, that's not me. I took every media call I did. I liked, they'd call and I'd radio stations in Chicago and I'd be like, what's up? And they're like, you party? And I was like, fuck yeah. Like it was. Do you find it poetic that it happened on April Fool's Day? Do you want to know something even more poetic? I shot my hour special for Showtime mm-hmm. on April Fool's Day uh, this year. Oh, nice! Yeah, so it was it was I think seventeen, no, nineteen years to the day that that article came out. Huh. And that, yeah, I did. I always did find it poetic that it was the that it was April Fool's. It's the only reason I remember the date. How how long after April first did it take to hear from Oliver Stone? I never really talked to Oliver Stone personally. Really? Yeah, well, I've, I've, oh, I have since, but um, I I got an very shortly thereafter. They were like, "This is a, this article is really big." Like people in Hollywood are reaching out to me. They would call me personally, and I got an agent. I got a literary agent. The reason I got an agent is that they didn't. No one. I mean, I, this is all speculation, by the way, because I don't know what people's motives were. But th- no one wanted to isolate me so I could sell the rights to my life. They wanted to package me and the journalist together. So I got his agent. Okay. His agent decided to cover both of us and said, sign with me, sent me papers. I wish I could remember the name of the company. But it's so funny because I wrote a book and I, you know, but I signed with them. And then he said, Oliver Stone Company wants to option the rights to the article. And so I was like, okay. which were technically the rights to my life, encompassing everything before co- anything they wanted. And so I was like, I was like, hell yeah. I was like, I, I remember I decided to do stand up at the time. I, I tried doing stand up. I did stand up one time. I had a great set, did like 20 minutes, murdered, never done stand up, didn't do, have any material. How did you decide to, to go straight from that to stand up? I, I said in the article. From, from I, selling carpets to stand up. I said in the article. It's like everyone, a hard pivot. I had everyone had always told me I was the funniest person they'd ever met. And so I was like, they were like, you should try stand up. And I said in the article, I'd like to try stand up. So a radio station, uh, put together a stand up night. 
Oddly enough, Christian Harloff, I don't know if you know him, he lives out in L.A., he was there that night. Mm-hmm. And so he's, it was a bunch of comics. They all did 20 minutes. I went up at the end. I did 20 minutes, and, uh, and I did really well, and they offered me my own morning show in Tallahassee. They were like, you can have your own morning show. Uh, you'll come in. You'll be third mic for a month, and then this guy's going to leave, and you'll take it over. And I was like, fuck that. I'm moving to New York. Oliver Stone offered the rights to my life. So uh, moved to New York. I wrote a script for Oliver Stone called The Undergraduates, um, thinking that, who better to write the script about myself than me? And I sent it, and I, I realized I was not in the loop of this production. Like, I sent it in. I don't even know if anyone read it. And they were like, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. What had you written before that? Nothing. I had nothing, but I was like, I was like, <laughs> Matt Damon and Ben Affleck did it. Like, I could do it. Like, that's, I don't know if they, they were at that time, but there were people who had written scripts, and I'd heard about it, and I was like, I could do this. So I wrote this script, The Undergraduate. Did you get a screenwriting book? Or? Yeah, I read a screenwriting book. Uh, got final draft and wrote a script and uh, sent it in. And they were like, where's the journalist? And I was like, what? And they're like, listen, for this script to work, it needs to be a story about you and the journalist. And I was like, why? And they're like, well, that's what the option is. The journalist needs to be in the script. You need to write something about the journalist. And they told me that. And I was like, right. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to write a story about me and a 50-year-old man. Man. And so <laughs> that's like the reverse of almost famous. Yeah. And so the I Stone journalist is a kid following the rock band. Yeah. And so it, and then it kind of fell apart. Mm-hmm. And and Will Smith discovered me in this time. I started doing stand up in New York. Will Smith discovered me. And then everyone got serious. I got like agents and I told everyone I got this option all over Oliver Stones. Right. And everyone started like kind of posturing and getting in position. And they were like they reached out to the producers and they were like, listen, if we want Bert to star in this. And they're like, there's no way we're going to let Bert star in a fucking movie. We don't even know who he is. And I remember my, my manager at the time was Barry Katz. He's like, well, Will Smith just greenlit a TV show with him. And if Will Smith's willing to make a TV show with him, you should let him star in his own movie. And I remember I was at my uncle's house and we had this conversation. And they're like, then I guess we don't have a deal. And Barry's like, I guess we don't have a deal. And this all happened really fast after that, after the Rolling Stone. Very, article. very quickly, yeah. I got discovered six months into doing stand-up by Will. And by you Will's started company. doing stand-up like right after? I started doing stand-up, yeah. I mean, I did – I bounced around. I moved to New York right after college on my 26th birthday is when I started doing stand-up technically. I bounced around the Lower East Side doing like Collective Unconscious and Surf Reality and like trying to – and like – and I, I, So I, you started in the alt scene? Yeah. Well, I was a fucking – was a, As the broiest bro? Dude – I was, I could not have fit in less. Like, no one was nice to me. Like, no one? There wasn't a single person that? Uh, Dimitri Martin. Okay. And I started together technically, but he just was accepted immediately. They loved him. And I was just kind of hanging out like his friend. Uh, Brody Stevens was really nice to me. Um, uh, uh, Jen. Kirkman? No, uh, no, no. <laughs> Jen, I love Jen. I'm good friends with Jen, but I didn't know her then. Jen, uh, but she used to run the show at Collective Unconscious. She used oh. to wear elf ears. Okay. She was really sweet to me. Uh, the and so was Face Boy. That uh, was another guy yeah. running the show. They were very nice to me, but for the most part, I was not. I was not accepted. Like, but none of those people. The only person that's still doing stand up out of that scene, I think, really. Is Liam? Liam he Agony. was. He was around. Okay. He wasn't mean to me, but he just wasn't. 
he's I think he's probably a lot like I am with more social anxiety issues than not. Mm-hmm. And so he was just me and him just never spoke really, but I knew his, who he was. Right. And what what was the material you were doing at the start, dude? So bad. I was trying to write like Mitch Hedberg. I was like, I was like, my name's. Uh, wouldn't it be funny if Papa Smurf's middle name was Boner? Papa Boner Smurf. Like what? There was so bad. You got to laugh out of the so, nineteen-year-old. Yeah, it was just really bad material, <laughs> and I didn't know what I was doing, and so I I ended up. To make a long story short, yeah. my dad on my 26th birthday gave me a very aggressive birthday call about my life. I went over, started working the door at the Boston Comedy Club, and I found my home. Like As soon as I got up on the Boston Comedy Club, there were hecklers, which was right up my fucking alley. Like four Puerto Rican guys up front, and I just destroyed them. Probably with massively racist material, <laughs> but I destroyed them. And they walked out, and the crowd loved me. And I could just fuck around, and I loved that club because it was, like, very interactive. So I didn't have to write comedy. I could just go up, and comedy would happen. That was that club at the time. Was It was, like, a little bit hood. And right, I, because and, it was right around the corner from the comedy cellar. Yeah. And it had, like, all the comics who couldn't yet get into the cellar. And, they could, and they could and, headline. And all the comics that could do the cellar would just come in and stop and do spots. Right. So you'd see guys like uh, – and I don't mean disrespect when I say this, but you see guys like Attell and Brewer and Hedberg come in and do a set of material. But then you'd see guys like Voss and Patrice and Bobby Kelly go up on stage and mess with the crowd. And so it was like a mix of both. And I think my style of comedy to this day is almost entirely defined by that room, by the way that room was. It was just – it was like have material. Don't lean on your material. Let the energy of the room dictate where you're taking it, but don't let them dictate to you. You just go in and read the room and and take it that way. It's it's a very New York style of comedy because when I moved out to L.A., I remember I there, I went and I opened for I hosted for uh, Drew Carey, and I literally the first words out of my mouth were, "Are there any Puerto Ricans in here?" Because I didn't know how to do comedy other than having someone attack me, and and I was like, "Holy shit!" I need I realized I need to write jokes. The analogy I make always, or it, I don't know if it's still the same, but was like working out. New York at the time, working out, doing stand-up was like working out in the prison yard with a broomstick and two cinder blocks on each side. You were just getting big enough to not get sexually assaulted in the shower. L.A. was all about abs and definition in your delts, and you could not defend yourself, but you looked really good. <laughs> like, And so I had to learn I need to look really good, and so I started writing jokes. And you didn't do much road work in between New York and L.A.? None. None. I got I got on Will, picked me up and moved me out to the Universal Sheridan. And I lived there for seven months. And then I went and did a tour with Patrice and Voss and Louis Schaefer and Ben Bailey in Scotland. And I still – I mean I had no fucking material. What was your relationship with Will Smith like? Uh, good. It was really good. He was really sweet. He taught me how to sell TV shows. Um, when I took out a movie later on in my life, he called me up personally and was like, hey, man. If you got movies, bring them to me. I'll help you. Like, he's really the greatest guy I've ever run into. Uh, Literally. When's the last time you thought about buying a mattress? For me, the first time I thought about buying one was when I was 21 years old, and that was a long, long time ago. You know, a lot has changed in terms of how you go about buying and, and testing things out. You know, last things first. The last thing of the day is you want rest. And the first thing you want when you wake up is you want to feel good. You don't want to feel all cranky or feel kind of knots in your neck. 
because you were on a bumpy mattress. And Casper has done this amazing thing where they take two technologies. It's a hybrid of latex foam and memory foam. And uh, I don't know how much it remembers, but uh, I know the latex feels good. And it provides just the right sink and the right bounce for you. And it's obsessively engineered. I, you know, most engineers are obsessive, I think. So, you know, that's that's great. It's also made in America, which is good. I like uh, I like being a, a, a patriot, a, a true citizen of the world and of my country. Really, the most important thing, though, is they've taken this comfortable mattress and they've given it to you at a fair price. Actually, better than fair. Uh, if you're going online and you're looking at, at mattresses, you might see prices upward of $1,500. But at Casper, you can get a twin-size mattress for $500 or a king-size for $950. You know, that's just outstanding. I, I can help and make it even more outstanding for you right now. You can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash lastthingsfirst and use the promo code I'm giving you right now, lastthingsfirst. Terms and conditions apply, but uh, sleep is your primary need, and I'm here with Casper to give it to you. Thanks. I mean, for development deals, we're here in, in Montreal at Just for Laughs where, you know, in the late 90s, this was the place to was get the, a development deal. I was the last generation that got development deals. My de- my de- development deal with Will Smith was coincided with Chicken and Frank Caliendo. Yeah, and, and Chicken's was here. Chicken's was here. Here in Montreal. He was like a new face or something and then got a six-figure deal straight So out I was going it. to the clubs when Chicken was going on stage and everyone realized he didn't know how to do stand-up. I remember going to shows and it was sold out. And Chicken was on stage humping stools and everyone's like, holy shit. It was, and and all I had was a seven minute set that Barry Katz had kind of put together for me. And Barry was the owner of the Boston Comedy Club. Of the Boston Comedy Club, yeah. And a manager, so that's how you ended up with him. That's how I ended up with Barry. So, how did you feel when you not only got a development deal without coming here to Montreal, but it was a deal with an A list movie star? I felt awesome. It was like, it wasn't the best feeling. It wasn't the best. So it feeling. wasn't like you felt like you won the lottery or like beat the system. I felt like I won the lottery. I didn't feel like I earned it though. Like I felt like. Did you feel like you beat the system? Oh yeah. Somehow? Oh yeah. I was like, I remember someone said new faces, and I was like, I, and then I said, I remember saying to someone, I want to do new faces, and they're like, you've already had a deal. No one's gonna ever put you on new faces. You're not a new face anymore. And I was like, I'll never get the experience of new faces at Montreal. I was like, fuck. <laughs> And even still, I come to Montreal, and I feel like I came in sideways from it. Like, I never feel like I walked through the front door, you know? So you feel like there's a there's a process. I know Comedy Central for years has had a process where you would do premium blend Dude, same thing or live at Central. Gotham. And then once you do that process, then you get to do a half-hour Comedy Central Presents. And then only after that, you get to do the hour. But you have to walk those steps. I, I mean, now there's people who sidestep that. There's no process anymore. When I did Comedy Central, I did a premium blend for Comedy Central, and then I was like, I'm ready to do my half hour. And so I put together a 22-minute tape, mm-hmm. sent it in, and I, no one even knew that I sent it in. And then I was like, okay, I guess I did that wrong. And so then I give it to my agent, and I don't think my agent even sent it in. And he was like, yeah, they've already booked him. And I was like, God damn it, I couldn't get a half hour. And then I was like, I just give up. And then I got offered an hour from Comedy Central, and I was like, this makes no fucking sense. And then they offered me a half hour as well. They're like, can you do a half hour and an hour? And I was like, why can't I just have the regular career that everyone else has where you do the things, like where you can judge your, your success based on other people's paths? But, and then, yeah. So I've how, always felt like that. How far did the deal with Will Smith go? How uh, far did you get with that? We wrote a script, sold it to Fox, wrote a script, didn't shoot a pilot. Then next, the next year I did a showcase 
for ICM. Um, and it was like the first time I was witnessing the cattiness of comics. So like the lineup was, uh, Scott Henry, then earthquake. Hmm. Then it was supposed to be another person. I won't say his name. <laughs> Very successful. And he was like, fuck that. I'm not doing, I'm not going after earthquake. I don't go after fucking earthquake. And I'm in the corner going, I loved following black dudes. Like my favorite thing in the world was following a black dude. Cause you didn't have, you didn't share any material. You could totally be yourself. I didn't understand that concept. And they were like, I'm not going after Earthquake. And I was sitting in the corner, and Barry was like, well, I mean, you can probably figure out who these people are based on his his past clientele. But he's like, <laughs> Papa, do you mind going up a few notches? I think I was in the sweet spot. I was probably going fourth. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, put me behind Earthquake and then put this other guy behind me. And I was like, yeah, I'll go after Earthquake. And I had a joke at the time. My, it was, the joke was, uh, my name's Bert. I know what you're thinking. Hot, sexy name. Do you do porn? No, I don't. It's the last name we want to hear during sex. Uh, 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 Bert. Boot, boot, and then I go shh, and I'd always say, uh, "Call me Quate." I was like, I don't know. I, was in, I met a Quate in New York. It got, a, it got a good laugh in New York. In my head, I was like, "I'll just go shh, call me Earthquake," and I said that shh, call me Earthquake, and the place went fucking bananas. <laughs> and Kathy Griffin was hosting. I did a seven-minute set that I'm telling you, it's the best set I've ever had in my life. 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 Kathy Griffin grabbed me when I came off stage and she said, you just had the dream set. And I walked off stage and Barry Katz shuffled me out the door of the, of the last factory. Oh, laugh factory. And he was like, do not speak to anyone. Get in a car and go home. And Wait, how, like, how did Barry Katz say it? Papa, you just changed your life forever. Do not speak to anyone. And I remember there were writers trying to come up I to just me. love your Barry Katz impersonation. I do a better Barry Katz on the phone. Barry Katz on the phone is a great one because he never pays attention. But and so he goes, okay, get out of here. And I remember writers were trying to talk to me. They're like, Bert, Bert, can I talk to you for two seconds? And I was like, yo, what's up? And Barry's like, he's not talking to anybody. And put me in. The first meeting I had, I th- I want to say the first meeting I had was the first thing in the morning the next day. And, uh, and it was at FX. I forget the woman's name. I, I feel bad, but it was at FX and she took her shoes off, sat, uh, crisscross applesauce on her couch and said, you, my friend are about to make more money than you can ever imagine. And I want to be someone that gives you some of that money. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, this is awesome. And that's your very first meeting. That was my day. very first meeting in LA. And I was, and I got, ended up doing that TV show, the X show for a year. Okay. That was the yep. deal. There was, a, there was FX alternative or Fox alternative. I wish I could remember her name. Did that doing the X show, did that tap into something, a desire that you had that you didn't know that you had? Yeah. Yeah. In well, terms I mean, of being a host, because you're now being a host and be, interacting with people. That's what you do. You're, you're not a sitcom guy. No. Well, at the time, at the time, it was don't do this because they'll never see you as an actor. And I was like, I don't give a shit. I was, I was like, this is going to be fun. So I ended up doing it. And I didn't have a problem with it. I really enjoyed it. I really loved doing it. And I ended up doing what I do now as I pitched a show to them, a segment called Hurt Bert, where I took dangerous men's jobs for a day. And we did it. And it was probably the greatest thing I've ever done on television to this date. Is I got my ass waxed. This is before any of the movies that Forty Year Old Virgin. Before any of those, like years before any of those, this is two thousand. This is two thousand, and so I got my ass waxed, and it was, I mean, before viral videos, it was Cher had a copy that she would send people on VHS. 
and they the place. How do you know this, Cher? Had a because copy. because everyone told me, like everyone, like porn stars would uh, would all watch this VHS because they were all getting their ass waxed. Right. So I'd go somewhere, and porn stars and models and hot chicks all went to this place called Pink Cheeks, and they played it on the loop. So everyone watched this one video when they went to get asked their ass waxed, and and. Cher used to go there, and they and Cher got a hold of the tape and fucking crank, and so, uh, yeah, it was pretty. It was like it was talk soup clip of the year. It was like, and so then immediately I was like, I did the show, FX got canceled. I shot a pilot with CBS Life with David J with Elliot Gould and David J Nash, who's now a big showrunner. And uh, what was that sitcom? It was about David. David J is just so fucking smart. We both had deals at CBS. After that showcase, I got a deal at CBS. We both had deals at CBS. And David J was like, if I do my show about me and Bert, chances are they'll shoot my pilot because it has both of us in it. And this is, I just made mine about me. And they were like, why the fuck wouldn't we make David J's and put all our money there? Right. And so I did that. And uh, that was a great experience. And but What would that show, what would you have been doing in that show? I was the, I was the best friend. Okay. I was his best friend who was like a little bit of a... A little bit of a dirt bag, a little bit of a, a little. It was, it was the first time I realized, like, I was like, I, I don't know if I want to be like a cast in a sitcom. I want to play me in a sitcom, like, because parts of my personality I think you don't get if you don't like, you know, like I'm not a bad person and I'm not a dirt bag and I don't sleep around with chicks and I don't, but like I am a fucking big drinker and partier and I like to get loose. But that was a great experience, uh, you know, working with Elliot Gould and. uh and then we did, uh, I, and then I sold the show to FX Hurt Burt. So we started doing that. How far did that go? Six episodes. It was probably just some amazing television that no one ever got to see. Yeah, I don't remember. No one it saw it. It's, it's six episodes. What they, year was that? Uh, that must have been it's before I had kids. Probably like 2002. Okay. 2001, 2002. After 9-11, because I remember I was taking Xanax a lot. <laughs> oh, fuck. Even exactly. though you were living in L.A.? Yeah, I was li- – yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, 2002, I think. Okay. So between that and doing um, Reality Bites Back yeah. for Comedy Central, the, the reality Big Brother kind of spoof, Yeah. Uh, were you just a road dog at that point? So I got done doing Bert the Conqueror – or Hurt Bert. Hurt Bert. Leanne got my – I met my wife during that – Doing hurt Bert, mm-hmm. we got pregnant. I ran out of money, and I was like, "Fuck!" How did you run out of money from I multiple development deals? Money so quickly. I spent money like what I had three months to live. Oh, you name it—a f- trip to Italy, like just hey, you want to go to Italy to my wife? And she's like, um, "Okay." We we're just dating, and I was like, "It's New Year's. Let's go to Italy for New Year's." So we flew to Italy for New Year's. We spent like. I think we spent like 20 grand to go to Italy for New Year's. Oh, wow. And I remember my dad going, I go, Dad, it's not going to be that expensive. He goes, it adds up, buddy. But I just, I just, I, li- I never let anyone pay for anything. I, I just lived big. I lived in a mansion up in the hills in Cecil B. DeMille's old place, a three-story house. And it was just, it was like, and I had, I had started the business making so much money that I was like, it'll never go away. Like, I'll just always make money. I remember being like, I remember calling Barry one time and being like, hey, I need another development deal. And he was like, it doesn't work that way. And I was like, no, I just tell everyone I want to do another one. 
Like it just, I was oblivious. And you weren't using either the the X show or Hurtbert to to get more money playing clubs. I wasn't doing stand up at all. Really, like, I wasn't. I, when I was on the X show, I would do sets. I would do like a set every now and then, but I was not like hitting the clubs the way I was. Right, like right when Leanne got pregnant. No, no, not when she got pregnant, but when she like right after I. After Hurt Bird, I was like, I need to get back into stand-up. I want to. I miss stand-up. Like, I got to get into it hardcore. That's so, because if, at that same time that you were doing those shows and not doing stand-up, I remember that was when Joe Rogan was hosting Fear Factor. Yeah, and he was doing the road and making like twenty-five thousand dollars a week just playing clubs. I remember Gary Valentine was. I, I'm not, I don't, not to share his money, but he told me how much money he was making one time, and it was like, and I was like, shit, man, how do I do that? But. Gary Valens, Gary Goldman and I would sit together and go, how do you get on the road? Like, it was just unattainable how to get on the road. There was no idea of how to... Even though you were on TV. Yeah. But, I, a, but I, I don't know if I'd sell credit. tickets. So, you so didn't like, know that you were a draw? I don't think I was a draw. Like, I don't think... I mean, maybe now in retrospect, I probably was. But, like, I didn't feel like... I didn't know anything about being a draw. I didn't understand how the road worked. So I, I started just working at the improv, like, doing hosting as uh, much as Mel I could. Rose, at Melrose, yeah. And then... Uh, and and then I started touring with Jay Moore. I, I did one show for Jay. Jay liked me, and he was like, hey, take a look at my calendar. Put in all your dates. And I started touring with Jay. So that was after – because I know Ralphie May was opening. Ralphie for was Moore. opening for him. And Bobby then he did Lee Last was Comic. was opening for him. And, like, so I was the – it was, like, Nick Swartzen, Bobby Lee, Ralphie, then me. Okay. And maybe not in that order. And then I started working for Jay. What did you learn – doing that i mean my experience with jay and i is is i i look back at everything fondly like uh he really kind of taught me how to do radio um i think i think more importantly than anything you know he was very sweet to me and he was very welcoming to my personality and who i was and he was very supportive of telling me what a great comic i was he was very much like dude you're the funniest guy in the world i don't think there's ever a point where he wasn't like you were the funniest like constantly you go into a club you tell the club how funny you were um and and it just was really good and it was like and he and i I'm, i'll be candid i was murdering on these shows and I, he wasn't like hey tone it down he was like do the best you can and so i i I think I, that, I mean, that, I, that was like, it was just a big ego boost and he was a movie star. And so it was like, you go into places and, you know, but mostly I think I, what I'm, I definitely learned from him is how to do radio. Like I'd watch him do radio. I'd go with him and do radio. And that dude murders fucking radio. Like, I mean, machine, the only person I've ever seen kill radio harder. And I just saw this one time was Daniel Tosh. Dude, Daniel Tosh's radio was impeccable. This is back when radio fucking mattered the way it – it doesn't matter like that anymore. And and even even the, the, the mediums changed so much, they don't have it like that. But, man, Jay would kill radio. Uh, so where was your career at when you did Reality Bites back? Uh, it was at the place where I was extremely grateful to get paid. Uh, I think – Red Grant's here. He knows. I think we got paid eight grand an episode. And I was like, fuck. I remember we had had Isla. We were living. My wife was working a job to pay for our apartment. It was She was managing the building. And when I got the call saying it was, an, it was just a straight offer, no audition, mm -hmm. just straight offer, I was like, holy 
shit. Like, that's crazy. What's You want to know something even crazier? I don't mean to say talk negative, but I remember them going through the list, and I was like, right. all the names impressed me except for Amy, because I was like, oh, she was on Last Comic Standing. Like, yeah, Amy <laughs> I wish they didn't have Amy, like, I wish they didn't have Last Comic Standing people on here. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but then was, when you actually started filming, did you, oh, I did felt, you look oh, around and realize, like, who might, who might really break out from this? No. Uh, no, uh, no. Not that anyone broke out specifically from if the show. If anyone but... was going to break out, I thought it would be Theo Vaughn, to be dead serious. I'll tell you what, I, I fell in love with Amy, and I mean that, like, not in a sexual way, but like, like a little sister. She reminds me of my daughter. My daughter looks like her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, and I fell in love with Amy, and I, I was like, she's my favorite. She was really fun to be around. The one thing I'll say about Amy, and this, uh, this is not intended to be negative at all, she was very, to this day, she's very fucking smart. And the, she played that game. Like, she played the game. Like, it was a game. We realized we were a bunch of idiots. We got on the show, and we were like, this is great. And then the first day, they're like, we're kicking someone off. And we realized, oh, shit, when you get kicked off, you don't make eight grand anymore. <laughs> and it became catty. I remember Chris Fairbanks went up to Theo and was like, please don't kick me off. I need the money. And Theo's like, uh, okay. And, and then so he kicked off Kyle Cease. And Kyle Cease was like, what the fuck, man? I just lost my job. You just took my job away from me, Theo. And it became catty. Like, you, you formed alliances. I was with Donnell and Red were my alliance. Donnell, Red, and Theo kind of were my alliance mm-hmm. with Amy. Amy was in there with us. And we were just trying to get everyone off that wasn't us. And, uh, but I watched them play the game. Amy was just really, Smart, just smart. She was like, it's a, it's a game. And I think she learned it from Last Comic Standing. And she, I think she or Theo won it. One of them won it. But, uh, but yeah, that was a, re- it was really fun. I lasted long enough where I only missed out on like two episodes or one okay. episode. But then that's when the Comedy Central offers. That's when, yeah, during that, the, they asked for the, for the hour and the, the hour, the half, half hour. hour. And then, and then I became, I, I fostered a relationship with them and I started doing pilots for them all the time. And then during that time, I got offered Birth Conqueror from Travel Channel. I had like two pilots I've lined up at Comedy Central and then this Birth Conqueror. And I was such a fan of Man vs. Food that I was, I only took the meeting so I could ask them about Man vs. Food. <laughs> and, uh, and so then I took the meeting and then they came up with a number that I, that I couldn't say no to. And I was like, I'll do it. I don't care. Yeah. How did you feel going on that first trip for for the Travel Channel? Because you had gone oh, on, dude, it was you so know, you had spent twenty thousand dollars going to Italy for New Year's, and you'd yeah. been on crazy adventures before. Um, How did it feel to be doing it for television? Well, I was so far at, removed from television. I think, I think honestly, I just didn't know how to host, and so I was trying to be a comic. Like I tried to write jokes for everything, and it was like just uncomfortable. And it was like I was doing crowd work with people that were at – it was bad. And Dan – Kind of like that first uh, attempt in L.A. where you're like, who here is Puerto Rican? uh, Very much. Almost identical. (laughs) I remember I asked this kid. I go – I said, you're not full black, are you? And he's like – like, by the way, he's just a person standing at a fucking theme park. He's not – he didn't pay an admittance. He's just standing there, and some guy's like, hey, and camera goes on. You're not all black, are you? And he's like, I know. And I go, let me guess. Your dad's black. Your mom's white. And he's like, "Uh, yeah. And I go, nailed it, and, like, walked away. And this kid started crying because apparently he never met his dad. And and I brought it up. And they were like, hey, man, you got to dial this shit back. They're like – 
This does not need to be funny. It just needs to be you experiencing these things. When was the first time you figured that out? Probably this when I jumped off the stratosphere. Um, no, maybe not. Maybe before that in Utah, we did this human slingshot, and I and I realized, oh, the funny part in this is just me, just being myself, like just being scared or asking real questions, like just being real curious. Right. And uh, and then I was like, oh, this is, oh, this is, I really enjoy this. Was that before or after the episode where you you did the. Uh... The race where you're carrying your wife? That's before. Okay. When that one was the beginning of season two. And uh, and it was fun. One of the things, one of the constants I had, I'd had is like on Reality Bites Back and on the X show and on any show I'd ever done, I became family with the crew and the cast. And I like, I mean, we were so fucking tight on Reality Bites Back. I mean, there, we had so much fun. We gossiped so much. We just bullshitted. It was 10 comics living in a house together. So much fun. Um, and one of the things I fell in love with immediately on Birth Conqueror was my crew, Scott, Mike, and Lonnie. And we just did everything together. We were a team. And I, and I loved it. I like, I got, if someone couldn't do a trip, I'd get upset. I'd be like, how could you do that to us? Like, and so like, that's still one of the things I miss about like being on the road right now, being on uh, just a comic is I don't have a team. It's just me. I'm really impressed with how lonely you get. Like you're just, it's just me getting up to eat breakfast by myself, to work out by myself, to take a nap by myself, to go do a show by myself and then get in a car by myself. And it's fucking insane. But you've learned to do that now, to to balance having a TV show and a stand-up career. So I don't you... think I've learned to balance it. <laughs> <laughs> but you've learned that the money does run out. Yeah. You've oh, learned yeah. your lesson from before. Uh, I have learned my lesson before, but I, no, I haven't learned it. My wife, I married my wife. Okay. And my wife's good with money. And so my wife was like, as opposed to buying the thing you can barely afford at the end of every month, why don't you buy a house that you can afford at the lowest you've ever made money? So we saved up and we bought a house that's really nice, has a great man cave in the back, but we could afford with the literally the least amount of money I've ever made on the road, we could afford it just by that. Who, who or what has been good in terms of giving you other advice in terms of managing your life or your career? And Oh, oh uh, I mean – it's it's weird because I wouldn't say advice. I mean, who do you who where do you go for counsel? I don't go to anyone for counsel anymore. Okay, I, I stopped that. It was it was a bad habit. It was a, uh, I I will get into real conversations with friends about mm -hmm. my life. Um, Tom Segura is obviously my best friend. I talk to him about everything. I talk to him about we talk to each other about every aspect of our careers. Um, Rogan and Bill Burr are both good friends that I would confide in on stuff that I'm confused about, but I don't seek out like, like I, I realize that it's bad to say to someone, Hey, what do you think? Because then when you do the opposite of them, then they get almost like, what the fuck? You don't respect my opinion. I told you what to do and it backfired, but I'm, it's going to be my call at the end of the day. So, but like, like Rogan and Burr, both Rogan and Burr were like, you need to do an hour, dude. You're fucking stop with the travel channel. They're like, you have to do an hour. You've got to put an hour out. You've been doing stand-up for how long without doing an hour? Like, honestly, you have to do an hour. And I was like, okay. I focused. I'd had an offer from from Showtime for that for that was over a year old to do an hour. And finally, I just called him up. I'm like, I'm ready to do the hour. And I did the hour. And then I was like, shit, I'm inspired to do comedy again. Because mm. once you do an hour, you clean out your closet. And you're like, right. oh, sh I'm ready to write. Like, And I was like, that's 
and they were like, focus on your podcast. Really focus on your podcast. Put it out once a week. Once a week on the same day and really pay attention to getting it better and try new things. And I, both of them said this to me at the comedy store one night. And I was like, okay. And I did that. And I've grown my podcast by, um, by I would say, 50% in the past through four months. And so I like it's like I think I look to my friends as like as like as like kind of guidelines, but I don't want to I don't want to put anyone on a pedestal. Rogan changed my life for the better, hands down, no questions asked, and kind of expanded my friendship. And now I have friends that I really care about. Like I would I got really weird about friends, but now like like I love I love like I love do, having breakfast at, in Montreal. Mm-hmm. It's just sitting next to Jay Okerson, who I don't spend enough time with. But now I'm willing to be in. I'm willing to be there as a friend. I don't know. It's, it's a little fucking loaded of a statement, but like Ari and Duncan and Joey and all these guys are my friends that I run. It's easy that I talk to, and I am willing to be open to. Does that make sense? Yeah, because you were just saying a few minutes earlier about when you're not doing the TV show, you have a fam. You feel like the yeah. TV show is a family. But that you didn't have a family as a stand-up, you felt alone. So this yeah. is, in a yeah. way, Montreal is great for me. I love it. I love the partying and the hanging out. The stand-up I could do without. <laughs> I, like, the actual comedy part of the comedy. Some festival? of it. I mean, like, I don't mean to shit on the festival at all, but like some of the things they put together, I understand people need to get paid, mm-hmm. but like, you can't like create a comedy club in a warehouse. <laughs> it just doesn't work. <laughs> so it's like you can't. Pay noise. You just need to do it at comedy clubs. Right. Well, I mean, the festival has just grown so large that it's got, it's they don't have really big. They have to create venues. It, they've got to create venues, and I get it. I totally get it. And they I'm have to. Ha- they have to use hotel conference rooms. Yeah. It's but it's but it's uh, but I I yeah, I love this festival. I'd I'd come back every year just for the experience to get to bump into guys like like James uh, Adomian. Yeah. I saw him for the first time. It's fucking amazing. Uh, Did you see him doing himself or doing uh, other people? Bernie Sanders. No, I saw him doing Oh, he do- yeah, he impersonates a lot of comedians. Todd Glass. Yeah. I was like, I could do this. He does Todd Glass, he does uh Louis Black, Louis CK, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you have a you have a pretty mean very very cats, so, you know. Oh, yeah. That's all I got is very cats. What, so what would your advice be to the listeners at home or to uh, the 19-year-olds out there who, who want to be comedians, who who aren't part of a comedy festival, but it, but they want to be part of this? They want to have a career. What would what would be the first thing you would say to them? You know, I don't know. I, I don't know. That's really hard because I, I think even I have been doing it 17 years, and I don't, even I feel like I don't deserve to be here sometimes. Like, you know, like – I, I would just say really love comedy. Like that's the – sometimes I look at people and I go, I think they like the status in the entertainment industry more than they like comedy. Like some people are like ladder climbers like that. And you just watch it and you're like, you've said a lot of credits and people you hang out with. But like do you just giggle? Do you like to giggle? Like because I love to <laughs> giggle. Like I really – like. Jay and I, Big Jay and I had lunch yesterday and I, breakfast yesterday and I laughed for like an hour and a half. I just giggled. Like I go to these shows, I watch Jimmy Carr and I'm fucking howling. I go to, I watched, uh, God damn it, I don't know why I can't, his name's not on the tip of my tongue. He's my new favorite guy to watch. But I went to Ari's storytelling show and watched, um, fuck. He did the show with Jay Larson with the bars. Oh, Sean Patton. Sean Patton. Yeah. I'm howling, laughing in the back. I'm yeah. just giggling. That's what this business is about. It's about giggling. It's not about do you 
know who books this room or what. I don't, I don't think that's what it's about. I don't know. But like, I'm always impressed when people know so much about the business and I go, that's not supposed to be our job. Our job is just supposed to make people laugh and just be tuned in to that part of the, of the brain that makes people laugh and giggle and be different. I was talking to Janine Garofalo last night, not to drop names, just like I said, I hate it, <laughs> but I'm a, a massive fucking fan. And I watched her work and I said to her after the show, I said, it's so much fun to watch you work. And she was like, I'm so self, so insecure about my set. And I went, no, the, the thing that, and maybe this is like the perfect advice, but the thing that you're insecure about what you do on stage is the thing I like. Like none of us can replicate what, not, not to shit on Dane, but like none of us could replicate what Dane had. Mm -hmm. But so many people said, if I can do what Dane does, then I know it's going to be good because they'll all be laughing really hard. But Dane was doing his own little thing. Right. And, the, and when you watch Janine work, it, she may be insecure about it because it's so fucking different than anyone else. No one's doing it like that. So, you, so a lot of times you go up to do a show and you go, I'm doing it different. Does that mean it's wrong? And you're like, no, that's what makes it great. And so – and like Sean Patton so different. And James Adomian is so different. I'm sure they lay and sit in their room just like I do and go, am I any good at this? But that is what – just be different. And that's what makes it so fucking fun, I guess. I think that's my advice. I don't know. Yeah. I mean I, we could actually poll the audience and find out if that works. <laughs> but Well, I know they laughed. And I know, Bert Kreischer, you always make me giggle. So oh, I'm I, a big laugh. I'm really uh, grateful that we finally – Found time to sit down and talk into microphones. I am too. I'm really glad we did this, and I'm and I love your podcast. Keep uh -huh. doing it. Thanks, Bert. Don't and, stop. And I know we've got tons of shows to go to, so I won't keep you any longer. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you guys so Thanks. much. Thanks. I hope you guys had a great time. It would it be too much to ask for a standing ovation? <laughs> <laughs> a standing ovation. Uh, Sean. A standing ovation for Bert Kreischer, everybody. Thanks so much. This episode of The Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.